In this lecture on family, residence, and kinship, we will extend our understandings of the pair bond and marriage practices in human cultures to look at the broader groupings that are formed from these relationships. What we will do is first look at a variety of family forms that are found cross-culturally. How is it that people are organized into families? And look at how this relates to marital residence patterns. Where do you live when you get married? This will set the context for broader considerations of the concept of kinship. Who are you related to? And look at the cultural definitions of kinship and the functions that kinship relations provide in cultures around the world. We'll look at, in particular, a specific form of kinship system called a unilineal descent group. And these unilineal descent groups, which trace their relatives only on one side of the family, form important organizational structures with important functions in human societies. We'll also look at the bilateral kinship systems where kin are traced on both sides of the family and look at how these modern kindred groups are formed in our society and the different roles that they play. And finally, we will look at general principles of the classification of kin, recognizing that cultures have very different ideas about who is important in terms of your relationships and use our understanding of these systems to see how culture structures through kinship the organizational principles of a society. To begin with, a brief overview of some terminology that will help you understand some of the concepts we introduce. Terms like patri or matri refer to father or mother or male or female lines respectively. So we'll talk about patrilineages, patrilocality. And we'll look at neolocal, new localities, as well as avuncle locality, living with an uncle. Terms like local, locality, <clears throat> refer to residence, where you live. Why lineal refers to a lineage, a line of people within a kinship group. And finally, archy, as in hierarchy or patriarchy. Where is the power structure in society? We will combine these terms, patrilocal, patrilineal, patriarchy, to create conceptual frameworks to talk about how cultures organize people. To begin with, we'll look at the family from the animal perspective and move beyond the introductory understandings provided in the previous lecture about the importance of pair bond and, in the human case, marriages. We find that in the animal kingdom, many animal groups form family systems, which is to say not only the male and female bond that persist across lifetime, but often including within one's local group the offspring that may stay for a generation or many generations. In the case of some animals, these provide important assistance in feeding the next generation of offspring. And in the cases of many primates, we find the formation of matrilines, where female kin stay within the group, and so a woman will be living with her mother, her sisters, her daughters, and even her granddaughters. In many primate groups, this forms the power structure in the society. While we often focus on the alpha male, sometimes it's an alliance of females that decides which male they're going to accept and may support those males through their sons or actually fighting themselves. We note that these female kinship structures are very important and often give considerable power to juvenile females who can take food, for instance, from a dominant male when her mothers and sisters are standing around. In the human context, families are even more important and they create more 
stable intergenerational structures. And in one level, we have to say that the family appears to be a human universal. Of course, then that begins to beg the question of, well, how do you define the family? In our own culture, we would be inclined to define the family in terms of mom, dad, and the kids. However, when we look cross-culturally, this idea of the nuclear family uh, has many exceptions, and not all cultural groups include, for instance, the husband or the father as core to the family system. When we look at family forms, we have to recognize that in all cultural groups, there is some kind of matrifocal core to the family system. The mammalian bonding between mother and offspring is also part of all human families. And in every culture of the world, the mother is viewed as having the primary responsibility for the immediate care of offspring and children. But in virtually every culture, we find that this matrifocal system is extended with other members that form part of the basic family group. Perhaps the most widely known form of the family is what's known as the extended family system. And this is basically an intergenerational structure. Three or more generations linked together as the basic family and often residential units. So this would mean that, for instance, grandmother and grandfather live with their children and some of their children, perhaps the sons, perhaps the daughters, stay in the family system with their new spouses and their children or the grandparents' grandchildren. So in most parts of the world, what has been considered a normal family is this multi-generational structure. Those of us in the United States are more familiar with the concept of the nuclear family. And this is where we have mom, dad, and the kids. Is this a normal family? When we look cross-culturally, this has not been the normative pattern. It's been very rare, and it tends to show up in particular kinds of circumstances. It became an important part of American culture because migration from Europe normally didn't include the grandparents. So it was, at best, a woman and her husband and their children. However, the modern world has also further led to the generation of the normative extended family system, making the nuclear family or even more reduced units the most significant form of family in our society. There are a variety of compound family systems. We can look at the uh, systems of polygyny as producing various forms of compound families where uh, women with their children live together, literally in a common compound, but with their own houses. Uh, in the modern world, we also find what's been called the augmented or blended family. Uh, some people call it the partridge family, where mom and her children from a previous marriage marry a man who brings his children from his previous marriage, and then they may have children on their own. Today, people often point to another form of family, the single female head of household. And social research leads us to the definitive conclusion that this really is a consequence of societal disintegration, uh, and that it normally occurs when there are powerful external political and economic factors that lead to the disintegration of the family. So for instance, it has been noted that the groups where the single female head of household has become a predominant family form in modern America are groups that have suffered extensive political oppression and economic deprivation. And so these family systems are not what the cultures intend, but often are consequences of forces beyond their control. 
Social science also tells us to be cautious in interpreting the presence of a single female head of household. While this is often the case for legal purposes, most of these single female heads of household are embedded in broader systems of kinship, which while not perhaps bringing those members into the household, may nonetheless be living across the street, two blocks away, forming a multi-household family system. But in all cultures, what we find is that this matrifocal foundation of the family and the mother-child bond has other kin attached to it. And this plays an important part in how societies are organized, not just at the family level, but at broader political systems. Marital residence is a question regarding where do you live when you get married? Now, to most of you, this probably seems to be an obvious answer, was where you and your significant other want to live. This idea of neo-local residence, a new residence for husband and wife, has actually been a relatively rare form cross-culturally. What we find more typical cross-culturally is what's called patrilocal or virilocality, a residence pattern in which the newlyweds go and live with or near the groom's father's family. So this pattern is found in approximately two-thirds of world cultures, where by preference, when marriage is transacted, the newlyweds are living with the husband's family system. We also find a pattern of matrilocal residence, where the residence pattern focuses on the bride's family instead, and in particular, living with or near the bride's mother. These matrilocal patterns may or may not involve the husband actually joining the bride's family as a residential member. As we'll see later, in some cases, the family structure is based around the brother-sister bond and not the husband-wife bond. Avuncle-local is a pattern similar to the matrilocal one where residence is with the maternal uncle. Uh, and this provides a system of support based around kin traced through female. Bilocal patterns are societies in which the individuals have a choice about living with either the groom's family or the bride's family. And the bilocal pattern is very rare and appears to be an adaptation that occurs when there is severe depopulation in society and there may not be sufficient kin to establish a single pattern for postmarital residence. So what causes these different residence patterns? Well, neo-local residence being primarily associated with the modern world is thought to be a function of economic independence that people have in the modern world and the support that they can acquire through money and participation in commercial economies. If you have money, family is not essential then for forming a new household. By local residents, again, a consequence of depopulation and the need to find any kin relations that one can in order to create a more extended family system. Patrilocal residence, which is the predominant pattern cross-culturally, is found to be associated with societies that have high levels of local or internal warfare. And as we will illustrate in greater detail when we look at the patrilineal systems, these kinds of residence patterns reinforced by patrilineal kinship provide a basis for organizing male kin together for defense. We'll see that the patrilocal residence pattern keeps related males together 
and allows them to respond quickly and with an existing hierarchy when there's a need to defend the group. So this is probably why patrilocal residence is so predominant and why it is so strongly associated with the presence of local warfare. Matrilocal residents, on the other hand, uh, are found in societies that only have distant or external warfare. There's not a threat of war with the people that live around you. One might suppose here that matrilocal societies would only survive under those conditions, as we'll see when we look at the kinship diagrams. Matrilocal residents and matrilineal kinship systems don't bring related males together. Rather, you have uncle-nephew relations, which don't have the same power and bond as do father-son relations. So there are a variety of different adaptations that societies have made to external factors. What we see is that, in essence, kinship groups, the organization of people together based on some assumption that they are related, is the foundation for not only our residence patterns, but some of the broader organizational principles in society. So what is kinship? Most of you probably think you know what it is. It's people that you're related to. But what kind of relatives are these? When we examine kinship systems cross-culturally, what we discover is that kinship, while dependent upon both biological relatives and social relations, in-laws through marriage, is in essence a system that is culturally defined. Every culture decides which members that they want to define as kin. And in no culture does it include all of your biological relatives, nor in all cultures does it include all of your so-called in-laws. You might think that terms like mother and father and sister and cousin are somehow natural categories reflecting biologically-based kinship relations. But what we discover cross-culturally is that the term mother may be extended to a variety of people. It may include people that we would call aunts, or even in some cases, nieces. We also find that kinship systems lump people together based on certain assumptions. For instance, ask yourself the following question. Are your aunts biological relatives? Does the category aunt basically designate people that you have a biological relationship to? And of course, your answer is probably yes and no. Some are biological kin, some better not be. So why do we call these diverse people ants? Well, we'll see later that this has to do with the principles of a particular kind of kinship system. So examining who we extend terms like aunt and uncle to helps illustrate that kinship designations are basically cultural traditions, that they're formalized patterns of social relations and even when we have common categories like mother or father, it may include very different kinds of people and furthermore diverse expectations about what their relative roles are going to be. So when we examine the biological and social factors that underlie the concept of kinship, we will see that it includes not only these consanguineal with blood relations, biological relations based upon parent-child descent, but that it also includes affinal relations, marriage relations created through contracts, people that we call our in-laws. And kinship also includes fictive kin, a kind of made-up kinship that may include people incorporated into your family through formal adoption, 
or may involve more informal kinds of relations. For instance, where mom's best female friend and the person that she always calls upon for support may be considered an aunt in your family, even though she's not married to anybody uh, who is an uncle. So why do human beings create kinship systems? Well, we have to say that kinship systems are multifunctional organizations that meet a variety of human needs. One of the things that they do is that they provide for continuity of the generations. When there are resources to be inherited, when there's positions to be inherited, kinship systems provide a vertical organization that determine who you're related to, who you can call upon for resources and assistance, and who you are entitled to receive certain benefits or goods from when they die. Kinship systems also provide for the care of children, and as we've pointed out before, in all cultures, marriage implicates a broader group of people than just those who are married when it comes to responsibilities for childcare and rights with respect to access to children. We'll also note, as we did in the economics chapter, that kinship systems provide a fundamental basis for the organization of work and the sharing of resources in society. Before the advent of complex agricultural and industrial societies, almost all work in human cultures was organized on the basis of family and kinship. And as we will examine in greater detail in the context of unilineal kinship groups, we will see that kinship provides an important form of political organization. Not only vertical organization linking people across generations, but a horizontal organization that links people at a given place in time into a hierarchy of relations that allows groups to use the principles of kinship as a basis for broader political organization and the society. Kinship, and in essence the groups that it creates, the descent groups, are defined by social criteria. A descent group is basically a social group that is determined by descent from a particular ancestor. As we will see, while these are based upon concepts of blood, consanguineal relations, cultures can have very different ideas about who one designates as one's relatives and one's kin. The most stark of these systems, and the one that we will give greatest attention to, is that of unilineal kinship groups, unilineal descent groups, where kinship is going to be traced either through the mother's side of the family, matrilineal kinship, or through the father's side of the family, patrilineal. In unilineal kinship groups, in general, the idea is that you are only related to people on one side of your family. Fathers, relatives are your kin, and mothers are not, or vice versa in the case of the matrilineal system. We'll also briefly look at the bilateral systems where kinship is traced through both mother and father and includes biological kin on both sides of the family. For a variety of reasons, bilateral systems are not as effective in organizing people and only become predominant uh, in small-scale, simple societies like hunter-gatherers or in complex societies, industrial societies, where kinship has declined in importance. In this diagram, you have an illustration of a patrilineal descent group where both men and women trace their kinship relationships exclusively through men. So as you will see here, 
anyone who is a direct descendant of the original male founder of the clan, signified by the triangle at the top of the hierarchy, is also a member of this patrilineal descent group. However, the offspring of females, while they are biologically related to this uh, original founder, are not considered to be members of the descent group. As you will note, the patrilineal descent groups provide a clear hierarchy of relations from father to son to grandson to great-grandson. On the other hand, when we look at the matrilineal kinship group, where both men and women trace their kinship relationships only through female linkages, we get a system in which females, grandmother, mother, granddaughter, and granddaughter, are linked across generations. But you will note in these matrilineal kinship groups that you don't get a clear hierarchy of male relations. Men within the group are either linked as brothers or they are linked in uncle-nephew relations. So when we looked at the matrilocal residence patterns, which you typically have with matrilineal kinship, you can see why this doesn't provide an effective organization for the defense of a group. Whereas on the other hand, in the patrilineal descent groups, the hierarchy of males, fathers to sons, provides a clear organizational structure for society. There are other kinds of rules of descent, but they are not as prevalent as the patrilineal system. In double descent systems, which are relatively rare, we find that there is both matrilineal and patrilineal inheritance patterns, but they define different kinds of inheritance rights. For instance, one may receive land through one's female ancestors, a matrilineal inheritance, uh, but receive a, a religious office or some political position through the patrilineal system. So they have separate systems for different kinds of rights in society. In ambilineal systems, which are also relatively rare, a person gets to choose whether they trace their kinship through male lines or female lines, one or the other. This kind of system gives one flexibility in choosing which kin is it most advantageous to ally with. If, say, your mother's kin has lots of land and your father's doesn't, well then maybe it makes sense to trace your kinship through the matrilineal lines and affiliate with her kin. On the other hand, if your father's the head of the village and you're the eldest son and you will become the next leader, hanging out with hen's kin and convincing them that you're the best choice for the next leader is to your advantage. In bilateral systems, what we find is a tendency to look at both sides of our family in terms of tracing our kin. And what this does is basically enable us to uh, count on both mothers and fathers' relatives for help. But as we'll see later, the kindreds that are formed through this system don't provide clear uh, patterns or clear hierarchies of power. And there's often disputes. You may have experienced this when your mother and father argued about whether they were going to go visit his parents for Christmas or her parents for Christmas. Within unilineal groups, there are a number of levels of organization that go beyond the family. The most important one is the lineage, which is a consanguineal blood relation corporate group that includes people that are descended from a common known ancestor. 
So a lineage would include a number of different families all related to a common ancestor. And typically within lineages, there is a hierarchy of the families relative to the age of the sons, with the older sons and their extended families ranking over the younger sons and their extended families. Within lineages, there is inheritance of property. And so tracing one's lineage ancestors is an important source of power in society. Beyond the lineages, we have clans. And clans are also unilineal descent groups. But they have extended so far into the past that no one knows who that common founding ancestor was. So there is a belief that people are descended from a common ancestor. And this belief is generally reinforced by the identification of the clan with a particular totemic or mythical figure. So for instance, clans may be identified in terms of animals, the bear clan, the deer clan, the eagle clan. Clans tend to splinter, as we will look at in greater detail in the context of politics, which is to say the different lineages may split off and form their own separate villages or even migrate to distant areas. So clans don't have a single corporate head over them because that founding ancestor is dead. But members of clans can recognize their relationships based upon this common mythic figure that they use to identify their group. So you can go into a village hundreds of miles from your home, ask, you know, where do members of the bear clan live, and have an existing support structure where people are obliged to provide you with housing and food because you're a relative. Beyond the clan, there are concepts of fratteries and moieties, which are higher level linkages across clans. And here again, the idea of a mythical founder, mythical linkages among the different member groups is what links them together because the actual founding members of these groups have long since deceased. But they may provide important organizational structures. For instance, a number of Native American groups are organized into moieties, where you have two separate groupings of clans within society, even within the same village. And what the moieties do is provide an organization for marriage. You marry outside of your moiety and into a clan in the other moiety. And so relationships within society can be organized around these kinship principles. So what do unilineal kinship groups do for society? Beyond the general principles of the functions of kinship, we find that unilineal descent groups provide important economic organization. When we talked about economic systems and things such as potlatching and feasting, economic organization for these activities and the production that went into producing a surplus was organized by kinship groups. Unilineal kinship groups also reinforce the incest taboo and extend it to basically exclude everybody within your lineage. You must marry outside of your lineage. So typically, as is the case with the patrilineal systems, what happens is that women leave and marry into other groups and all of the wives marry in from other lineages. As we will elaborate on in the context of tribal and chieftain political structures, we will see that unilineal kinship groups provided the foundation for the emergence of more complex political organizations in society. In essence, taking the principles of kinship and using them as a structure, as a hierarchy 
for linking people together in society and a set of relationships in which power is determined by the kinship hierarchy and by the relative hierarchy among lineages. We also find that unilineal kinship groups tend to have important religious functions, and these are what we refer to as ancestor worship. What is typical of unilineal descent groups are practices in which the founders of the clan, for instance, the founder of the bear clan, is thought to be a deity, a spirit that has effects upon the descendants. And so the worship of this most important religious personage is carried out by the existing leaders of the unilineal descent group. In essence, we see an integration of political power and religious hierarchy within societies in which unilineal descent groups are the dominant aspects of social organization. Bilateral kinship provides a somewhat different set of principles for organizing society. These seem quite familiar to most of you, where we trace our biological relatives on both mothers and fathers' sides of the family. While these are important principles and used for the organization of band-level societies, most of the societies that emphasize bilateral kinship don't consider kinship to be very important. Um, for instance, in our modern society, uh, for most people, it's more likely that we socialize with non-kin, our colleagues at work, our friends, than with kin. However, in the pre-modern world in traditional societies, most socializing took place among kin. So bilateral kinship generally reflects the fact that kinship itself no longer plays an important role in the organization of society. One of the reasons why kinship no longer plays an important role is that the bilateral systems produce a particular kind of grouping that doesn't create a clear hierarchy among people. The kindred is an ego-centered bilateral group, which is to say kindreds are defined in terms of individuals, not in terms of a line of descent. In essence, the only people that have the same kindred are brothers and sisters, and this is before they're married. Once they marry, their in-laws and those other relatives become more important. So what we will see in the next diagram is that kindreds produce a variety of overlapping membership categories, and the importance of particular individuals even changes across life. So for instance, in the beginning, one's parents' kindred is most important, uh, later in life, the children's kindred becomes the focus. So it's not a useful principle for organizing societies because we have conflicting demands. For instance, what you, know, you want to do with your parents and what your spouse wants to do with their parents. So in here we see a diagram defined in terms of the egos at the bottom, a brother and a sister who share a kindred. But who are they going to be responsible to? what their father's side of the family wants to do, what their mother's side of the family wants to do. These kinds of systems don't provide a clear hierarchy for relating people together and consequently further diffuses the power of kinship. So what kinds of kinship systems are important and what kinds of cultures? The foragers, the hunters and gatherers tend to emphasize bilateral kin to maintain as many kinship relations as possible. And in their societies, 
flexible formation of residential groups and the ability to shift from one group to the other is made possible by kinship. Pastoral societies tend to be primarily patrilineal. And as we have illustrated before, it is protection and warfare, and in their case, protection from raiding, that makes patrilineal kinship most important. Horticultural societies are also primarily patrilineal, in part because patrilineal societies are the most predominant in the world. However, most groups that are matrilineal are horticultural societies. So this is the level at which horticultural societies support uh, the local group of women working together, for instance, on their gardens. Agricultural societies tend to be patrilineal, once again reflecting the importance of power hierarchies and conflict in society. And then at the level of industrial societies, we find a breakdown of kin that makes bilateral kinship the predominant pattern, but once again, one in which kinship is relatively unimportant. How do we classify kin? Kin terms and kinship terminology are concerned with the categories on one hand and the classification systems on the other. What this reflects is the notion that while there are some categories that are universal, for instance, mother or father, there are others that are peculiar to specific societies. For instance, in some kinship classificatory systems, you have special kinship terms for each brother, the eldest brother, second brother, third brother, etc. Uh, furthermore, in, in some kinship systems, um, we find the same terms extended to other people, where, for instance, there is a use of the term mother to refer to all of mother's sisters, or the use of the term father to refer to all of father's brothers. So when we look at the classification of kin cross-culturally, we see that people rely upon both biological criteria and social criteria. But not all biological kin are recognized. For instance, in kinship systems based upon the patrilineal principles, uh, mother's kin are really not your kin. They're her kin, not yours. Uh, and often vice versa in the matrilineal systems of kinship classification where mother's kin are your kin, but father's kin are not. So cross-culturally, we find that the pater, the social father, versus the genitor, the biological father, may or may not be an issue. For instance, as we illustrated earlier among the Nayar in India, there is a, a father or a husband that is given to the woman for a social purposes, but she may never have sexual relations with him. She may have other sexual husbands who are the fathers of her children. Nonetheless, in some systems, irrespective of who the genitor is, uh, the pater, the socially recognized father, may consider these to be the kin, his own kin. When we look at the classification of kin cross-culturally, one of the important principles is that cultures have different concepts about how you collapse or combine kin. Now, once again, you may think that we use natural categories from kinship but reflect upon the following. What do you call your mother's sister? In our society, we call this an aunt. Uh, what do you call your father's brother's wife? Well, in our culture, we call these aunts as well. But your mother's sister is a biological kin. 
and your father's brother's wife better not be biologically related to you. So we take people who have biological and social relations and collapse them into one category called aunt. Well, other cultures do the same thing with different terminology. So when we look at kinship systems, it's really a broader question of understanding what are the social principles that go into combining people together or separating them and understanding why these different systems of organization can play an important role in social adaptation. Before we look at some of these classification systems, let's briefly examine some of the principles that are used for classifying kin. What is typically done is that a particular individual, ego, is used as the point of reference. So in the kindred diagram, we illustrated that, the brother and sister pair, by putting them in a different color. All cultures pay attention to differences, although they don't all use the same criteria with the same importance. Three primary criteria found cross-culturally, though, are differences that demark gender or sex. So, for instance, the difference between mother and father, and brother and sister, and son and daughter. And all classificatory systems use generation. So, grandfather and father, aunt and niece as a principle of organization, although they may treat different generations differently and in some cases even collapse generations or combine them. Most kinship systems pay attention to whether or not it's paternal or maternal kin, and in some cases they will have an elaborate set of terms for paternal kin and only one for maternal kin, mother's relatives, and others will have something like the reverse. Some of the other important criteria that are used cross-culturally would include things such as age and relative age. For instance, in the Sudanese system where each brother gets a different kinship term. Most cultures make important distinctions between consanguineal, blood relatives, and affinal, affines, people related through marriage. However, as we've noted before, our cultural system emphasizes the in-law distinction, uh, but nonetheless collapses certain people, such as uncles and aunts, down to the same categories as biological kin. Systems that emphasize the importance of kinship hierarchies will also distinguish lineal systems from collateral systems. For instance, distinguishing the people from whom you are directly descended, such as your grandparents and great-grandparents, from people to whom you are related but not directly descended, your collaterals, such as your uncles and your nephews and cousins and things like this. So all cultures make kinship distinctions, all use gender and generation. Beyond that, other principles may be added to emphasize distinctions that are significant in the society. We're going to look here at some of these different types of kinship terminology systems briefly. They're discussed in greater detail in the text. The Eskimo system, which is the term used to refer to the kinship system predominant in North America, is one that focuses on the nuclear family. As we've pointed out, it collapses distinct kin, biological versus affinal, into common categories, in part reflecting just the importance of the nuclear family system and the nuclear family system of one's parents. If one looks at the kinship distinctions that are used within the Eskimo system, mother, father, 
uh, son, daughter, husband, wife, brother, sister. These are all members of the nuclear family. If we go beyond that, grandfather, grandmother, granddaughter, grandson. Well, these are basically the extensions of the nuclear family into the prior or subsequent generation. And if we look at the rest of our kinship terminology, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews, and nieces, these are all relatives who are descended from members of our parents' nuclear family. So the whole Eskimo system is basically focused on just emphasizing relationships among nuclear family relations and the nuclear families of our parents. The Hawaiian system is even a simpler system. It only emphasizes generation and gender. In the Hawaiian system, the term that you use to refer to your father is also applied to your father's brother and your mother's brother. Father to them really means male relative, the generation above mine. Similarly, in the Hawaiian system, the terms of uh, brother, and cousin uh, all collapse down to the same. It's basically, once again, the children of people that you would call father. So while this might not make much sense to us, uh, it appears to have been an important adaptation to people who experience severe depopulation. If three quarters of your relatives are dead on your father's side, and the same is the case on your mother's side, and it may include your mother and your father, who do you rely upon for support? Who's going to be your parents? Well, the Hawaiian kinship system has a ready-made organizational framework. You already call your mother's sister your mother. You already call your father's sister your mother. So these kinship terms then assume the responsibilities traditionally associated with the, uh, the terms mother and father. The Iroquois system is one of these where these terms are collapsed down, where the term that you use for your father is also applied to your father's brother, and the term that you use for your mother is already applied to your mother's sister. However, there is a distinction between the father's sister, which is a crossing, which gets a different term, and the mother's brother, a female-to-male crossing, which gets a separate term. Father's brothers and mother's sister's children are called the same thing that you call your own brothers and sisters. And as is illustrated in the text, the Omaha, Crow, and Sudanese systems make even more elaborate distinctions based upon principles that are important derived from the particular kinds of unilineal descent systems that are part of their societies. So in summary, there are a variety of family forms and residence patterns. And many of these are clearly understood as adaptations to particular kinds of ecological circumstances. In all societies, there is an importance placed upon kinship, although the importance varies. In many societies, as we will see in the subsequent lectures, these kinship systems provide a political structure for the society at large. We'll also have noted that the differences in the classification of kin reflects cultural priorities rather than some strictly biological criteria. And in this sense, kinship is always a function of what cultures consider to be important. It may be all of your biological kin, or only your fathers, or only your mothers. Once again, it's the broader context within the culture. It's residence patterns, it's descent systems, 
that determine which kind of particular adaptations are best suited for the group. Of course, these particular conditions may have changed over time, but kinship systems tend to be conservative and preserve the terminological patterns of the past. 